In a time of deep division and confusion, we need a voice of reason and truth, a voice calling us to unity. Join us as we explore the issues and tough questions facing the body of Christ today. We certainly don't always agree, but through constructive, loving, and open-hearted dialogue, we're seeking the unity of the Spirit, a unity that isn't afraid to disagree, a unity that doesn't demand conformity. This is the Building Bridges Podcast. The conversation starts now. Welcome to uh, Building Bridges. Technically episode two, but let's call this episode 1.5 because it's really a follow-up and a deeper dive to a conversation we were having last week uh, with Dr. Mark Sharona. If you haven't seen it, encourage you to go uh, check it out. It's of uh, Prophets and Presidents. That doesn't mean if you're watching it now and you haven't seen it, you'll be lost. We're going to recap a little bit, um, but just provide a little bit of context for what it is we're talking about. Um, might be good to check that out. Fortunate to have uh, Dr. Mark Sharona with us again, my lovely father and assistant here today, Dr. Randy Clark. Um, and we're just going to talk a little bit about um, some of the Christian nationalism stuff and just have a conversation that maybe um, pushes back a little bit and just senses like, okay, what is it that you were saying? Did I hear you correctly last week? And just kind of get to what it is actually that Dr. Mark Sharona feels like is such an important message for the body of Christ to hear uh, in the, in this hour. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Mark Sharona. And I say, just as a way of um, catching everybody up, could you do like a, explain it to me like I'm five, what is your definition of Christian nationalism? Sure. I'll be happy to do that, Josh. Well, first, I think if we start with nationalism, Webster defines nationalism as an identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the issues of other nations. So I think if we start with the definition for nationalism, it's not simply identification with one's own nation. It's identification and support for the interests of that nation to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of another nation. That's the acceptable definition. It's probably even close to the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, when we talk about Christian nationalism, you know, I think it was Chris Green that said, well, there's Christian nationalism and then there's Christian nationalism. You know, so there's a range of views, but it becomes extreme um, when we agree with nationalism in a belief in the superiority of or a radical preference for the benefit of one nation over against all other nations. But it's also over against all people who don't share the singular devotion to the idea of what a nation represents, be that for us America, and what would make then America a transcendent power. That, I think, is a deep concern because Christian there are Christian nationalists who hold to that. And they're always, they're always going to be suspect of other nations, immigrants, refugees, legal and otherwise. But they're most suspect of their fellow citizens who don't share their ideological convictions. That's Christian nationalism. Okay. Um, thank you for that. I feel like... What a lot of people would want to say or a lot of people heard last week and, and probably are, are feeling now is like, OK, that's bad. I recognize that that that's not good. I don't hold the, that belief. Um, I just think that I am a citizen of heaven. Of course, I'm a Christian. I'm going to accomplish the, the kingdom of God by furthering that, by going low and serving. But I'm also an American 
and I have some some rights and some responsibilities. I can cast a vote. My vote matters. Elections matter. They have consequences. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people heard that, you know, you were maybe um, saying we needed to, to, to have a political abstention or not be involved in the political arena or, or the and, and I'm wondering what is your thought on, you know, being able to can you can you be both? Can I be a good Christian and, and vote and and be a patriot? Yeah, yeah. And exactly. I think we need to define what patriotism is um, apart from Christian nationalism. But um, look, I like your dad, I have traveled all over the world. So I happen to love America. I'm an American. I love Americans. I love Americans no matter what race, no matter what creed, no matter what color. I love Americans. I love the idea of America. I want to see America work for everybody. I want to see the American dream work for every single child born in this nation. I love that. But I also travel. So if I were raised in Britain, I would say I love Britain. If I were raised, if I was now, if I was raised in Italy, I would say I really love Italy because I'm Italian. So does that make America better than the UK or listen in the millennium? Just so you know, I'm putting this out there in the millennium. If you want to find me, I will either be at Cambridge or Oxford or I will be in Florence or Venice somewhere on a boat relaxing and enjoying the fellowship of the saints. So just so you know, I love America, but I really do love the United Kingdom. I love London. I love Cambridge. I feel like I'm walking into history. So 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 I think if you're whatever nation you're a part of. I think it's important to love the part you, that what you're a part of, um, but not to the exclusion that there are. If I was born in, 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 in Brazil, I would love Brazil. I, th- I think we need to keep all that in perspective from a humane and human perspective. That's good. Does that help? Yeah, that's very helpful. So then regarding this recent political election, you do believe yeah. then that it's possible for Holy Spirit to have led a Christian to vote for either party, Republican or Democrat. Yeah. uh, And I think it's for either party or for an alternate party. Right. I think we're called to vote our conscience. And um, I think matters of conscience, look, the conscience is never perfect. We are fallen creatures as, as dad was saying before the broadcast, we're both saints and sinners. I, I love that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ but I also pray the prayer of, of blind Bartimaeus on a frequent basis and have for my whole journey. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pray that often in my private devotional life. So um, my conscience has to be informed in many ways, and it has to be brought back sus- subject to the, the Christian canon and to the spirit and to social ethics so, but that's very complicated depending on where I was born, how I was raised. But every one of us, I think if we throw away the right to vote, I think we are being very unfaithful because I think we need to vote, but we need to vote our conscience. And we can't have that conscience imposed on by others who say you should have voted for this person because I, I think it's very complicated. Same way, I think it is really I don't think as a pastor, I have a right to tell people whether they should or should not get the vaccine. I don't, that's out of my domain. I'm not going to do that to my people and play the moral decider of who, get, who, who says I don't need the vaccine, who says I need the vaccine. I'm not going there. I'm not going there for deep convictions about human responsibility and human freedom under God. Those are, those are deep convictions I have. I don't know if that helps or not either, but yeah, I, I think it does. Um, 
you know, touching on something that we, you know, covered a little bit last week, but I wanted to do a deeper dive this week is, you know, the, the idea of being able to, to vote your conscience. Um, certainly there was a lot of, um, prophetic voices, um, this season that were sort of seemingly steering or sort of at least giving a, um, you know, a behind the curtain viewpoint of what God's preference was and, um, uh, you know, sensing that we should be voting, uh, in, along a certain line here, voting Republican this, this year for, for Donald Trump. Um, do you believe, and I think you said something that I was like, oh, what does he mean here? Do you believe that a prophet should ever prophesy from the stage about a presidency one way or the other? Neither a, neither a president, nor a king, nor an emperor, nor a ruler, no, and no place on this planet do I believe a true servant of Christ called to bear the glory of God for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. We have no king but Caesar. And the only prophets that prophesied a candidate under the old covenant were the ones that were condemned as false. The true prophets always spoke truth to power and never prophesied a party line. So, no, I, I, I realize that I'm at odds with many of my friends. But when you're so committed to a candidate, it means you actually exalt your moral position above others that might disagree with you. And I can't go there. The testimony of Jesus, martyria, the cross shaped witness of Christ is the spirit of prophecy. And I would argue we need to capitalize that word spirit in Revelation 19, because the entire book turns on the four statements of the testimony of Jesus, the test and the spirit of faith, the spirit of grace, the spirit of creation is also the spirit of prophecy. And he always testifies of Jesus. He doesn't testify of political candidates on any part or anywhere on the planet. Now, having said that within Pentecostalism and independent Pentecostalism, with the rise of nationalism, there are certain nations where Christian nationalism has taken over the, the voice of the church and wanted a certain candidate in. But I would advise us that it's based on an over-realized eschatology. I'm not speaking here politically. I am speaking to be faithful to the canon of Scripture, to the Scripture, the Son of God, who God says, this is my beloved son, hear ye him, and the Holy Spirit who never deviates from speaking of Christ. So we've got a choice. Jesus stands in the presence of Pilate, and Pilate, Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, it, it, it may be as you say, he said, but I need you to know I've got no skin in the game with Caesar. I've got no skin in the game. My, my kingdom is not of this world or otherwise my servants would fight. On the other hand, if you want to argue for a candidate, the Pharisees at the trial said, we have no king but Caesar. That's a theological issue that's deeply troubling to me that we would prophesy a candidate or I don't, I don't even want to call it prophecy. I would call it divining. And I would call it a mixture of personal preference and a lot of other things. And I realize this will get people upset, but I'm willing to have this conversation and not in talking points, but going into the theology of it, which would take hours. But these are these are not talking points for me. These are deeply formed theological convictions based on years of wrestling with the sacred text, church history, the church fathers, the church mothers, the doctors of the church, theologians that are contemporary, and even the work I'm doing now in my doctoral thesis on constructing a Pentecostal theology of prophetic perception, consciousness, and enactment. So these are deeply held convictions I have, and they're not political, they're biblical, scriptural. Yeah, that's definitely a hot take, um, which I'm, I'm happy we're having the conversation. I just wondered, so all that's true. Now, well, now, okay, so that doesn't mean, let's say, let's say I had a personal relationship 
right. with someone that felt led of God to be called into the sphere of government. I have them in my church. I have people that have gone to D.C. under different administrations. We have prayed for them. We have blessed them. Many of them have gone because they felt like it's their divine obligation. We've prayed. We've blessed them. We affirm them. We support them because they want to bear witness to Christ within the current affairs that are. But never do they go thinking that they're going to decide that they're taking high moral ground over another party. And that's on either side. I, I can say that with absolute assurance. It's never about taking high moral ground that this position is right and this is wrong. Because, because to, to, to reduce God to one specific issue ignores the dynamics of the, the depth of the depravity of the human condition, the brokenness of the human condition, and the whole issue of theodicy which has to do with suffering. I think, I think we've come to a place in the culture where we think Christians don't have to suffer anymore. And I think that's a dangerous theological position to take. So I, I trust you're hearing from me that I'm not thinking at a surface level. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all the tributaries to this river and seeing where they all go in relationship to the Christ-shaped life. Hey, Mark, just uh, for a little help, when someone heard you say you think that's overrealized eschatology, could you just unpack that a little bit to, so they know yeah. what you mean by overrealized eschatology and, and, and what kind of eschatology would be more appropriate? And, and eschatology the being idea, the study of last things. Yeah, and I, th I think the idea that, listen, I, I, I get it in the end that we win, but the way we win is by the death burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. There is at the right hand of the Father a lamb standing as if having been slain. And he's been in that position forever. He is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And the way he overcomes is by dying for his enemies. And I think we have come to a place where we've, t we've flipped it and said, we're going to control and rule by the law. And we've forgotten that the first thing we're supposed to do as a kingdom of priests is to lay our lives down, even for the people that don't love us. I mean, that's the message of the cross. So the mo And I honestly don't see, look, here's what I can believe. I have a conviction. I, I think you may have the same conviction. I want to believe for a great worldwide outpouring of the spirit of God that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. I, I want to believe that as I read Romans 11, that we're going to see a great, overwhelming renewal of the glory of God before the coming of Christ. But I don't see that divorced from evil waxing worse and worse. I don't see this side of the second coming an elimination of persecution and elimination of suffering. That's going to continue because the cross can never be removed from the equation. So the moment we turn this into we win and everybody else loses, that's fundamentally not the cross. And it's antichrist. I realize that's a strong statement, but it's and, and, and again, Randy, part of that for me goes back a long way when people I loved got involved with a certain extreme form of postmillennialism. Look, I 
I could hear the post-millennials that say, well, we're going to preach the gospel to every nation like Finney and just see people converted until by virtue of the preaching of the gospel, there's going to be more of us that know Jesus. Then I'll go there. I'll put my faith out there for that. Whether that can happen or not, I don't know. But I can have hope for that. But the moment I take the extreme view that by way of the law, we are going to conquer everybody else and we're going to make them submit to the law of God, that and that's going to be the golden age prior to the coming of the Lord. I, that's heretical to me. I, I can't go there. I don't know if that answers sufficiently. F- feel free to ask again if, if I didn't say it clearly enough. So if I was to summarize, you'd say, um, well, let me start over. So if I was to summarize what over eschatology would be is expecting what's reserved for the consummation when Jesus comes back and he begins to rule. Be prior to that, seeing the church totally ruling, and there's no evil. Everything's basically been Christianized. That's yeah, I, that's I, I expecting don't... too much before the coming of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Expects the church that... to accomplish too much. Yeah, and I think the script. Paul is really clear. John is really clear. Uh, Jesus is really clear that good and evil are going to coexist, and we're gonna we're gonna suffer. We're gonna be persecuted. Um, and that's going to the now and the not yet, what we would call the dialectical tension between the now of the kingdom and the not yet that abides until the consummation of the kingdom. We don't get away from that. I, and I'd also just like to point out that that's not really a Pentecostal charismatic now, not yet issue that was actually popularized by a, a Baptist at Fuller Seminary. Right. So it's a right. it's it's right. a lot of Christians believe in this. The kingdom came with Jesus inaugurated. Uh, we're living in this age. There is an age to come when he will reign and rule. But until then, we're in the now. But the not yet It's kind of like we live in between D-Day and V.E. Yeah. Day. Uh so basically, after D-Day, the the war was assured. Allies were going to win, but there was a whole lot of fighting that still went oh, on between absolutely. the two, and that's where we're at now. Yeah, and Len Len Sweet would say Jesus is calling us from the future to the future, so we can live present to the future as if it were already here, but realizing that it will not come until history is complete. Yeah. Sure. Oh. Okay, I just wanted to unpack that phrase a little bit so people hear understanding. That was helpful. So if we're in the now and the not yet, we're in, right? We're in the now, moving towards the not yet. It seems to me when you, that, that hot take that you should never do this because, you know, he's installed his king on the holy mountain. We all agree. Yep. Does it not have a preference though? Does, is he now indifferent? Is, is, is the guy that we read about in the Old Testament where he seeming like, like he's installing leaders whomever he wants, not just the kings of uh, Israel, but also the leaders, the political leaders of different places where he's going to use them. He's obviously moving it toward redemptive history for his people, Israel. But does he now, um, post Jesus' death and resurrection, say, you know what, there's two candidates up there, three candidates, whatever. I'm indifferent. I don't have a preference. Um, that's what I feel like a lot of people are saying, like, that can't, is that what you're saying? Is That's the reality God's living in right now, that he doesn't have a preference on political leaders across the world. Um, I think the church is the polity of God. I think the minute we turn this into a political conversation and we ignore ecclesiology, we're already on unfaithful scriptural ground. 
the church fathers would challenge that. Augustine would challenge that. The Cappadocian fathers would challenge that. And because we want to think we're right, um, I, I, again, this is a very complex thing. So, so does God play favorites? No. I mean, I mean, just let's look at how God deals redemptively with every single human being. So let's not separate out whoever. I mean, we've already got people demonizing uh, the side that lost or the side that won. I mean, this is ungodly speech. Um, this has nothing to do with glorifying Christ. And so um, God has installed his king upon his holy mountain. He is Lord. He is I am. Any others are rivals. And here's what I would say. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. So whoever the candidate is, whether they reign righteously or they reign unrighteously, they are subject to divine retribution or divine um, approbation, depending on how they live and carry out their lives. God is still the judge. He, Jesus is the horizon. He judges all of us. So, so I would put everybody on an equal playing field. Uh, you know, I, you know, it's like, it's like, I don't relate to Jesus as bishop. I don't relate to him as prophet. I don't relate to him as pastor. I'm Mark. I, and I was known by him and am known by him. And he doesn't treat me as if I'm somebody special. He treats me as one of his sons amongst his many sons and daughters. And so my title doesn't impress him. My calling doesn't impress him. What he wants is intimate fellowship with me. And anytime I find myself in places where I am diverting my devotion from him to anything other than him and slipping into what could be idolatry, he takes me out to the woodshed. And so um, now that doesn't mean we don't have preferences, but I think it's way beyond our pay grade to assume the mind of God at that level is really known by us. We have to make the text say something it isn't saying and God is going to say, I have spoken in my son, hear ye him. So if we want to have this conversation, we need to go back to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about how we're to live this life, no matter where we are on the planet, America or South Africa or New Zealand. How do we live this life out? The Sermon on the Mount becomes the Magna Carta of the kingdom. And how we live this life out relationally, socially, ethically, morally is vitally important. And the moment we claim high moral ground for a particular candidate, we're playing partisan politics. I just, you know, I vote my conscience. I have voted my conscience from the time I had the right to vote. I have my personal preferences, but I am not about to assume I know who God said is, is the right candidate because I, I just, I just, I'm not God. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Mark, I'd like to follow up as, uh, in your role as a pastor. Um, you know, we really do want to try to build bridges of understanding and um, understanding different people's perspectives, you know, why they think the way they do, why they do the things they do. And um, um, you're a pastor of a multiracial and also probably lots of different opinions politically as well. And yet, it, I've, I've been at your church. It's a, I love coming to your church. I, I love the, the the love and the unity that I see. And this is one of the things that I think the 
the Lord prayed for he, that uh, his family would be one, his the believers would be one, that there would be a unity there. And I think that uh, whatever we can do to maintain and preserve the unity while allowing people to vote their conscience, uh, I'm just curious, what, how, what have you found to be important? This is not the first time you, I think you pioneered the interracial and multi-ethnic church in Raleigh in the South. Um, I was there, too. So what could you say to pastors is when, okay, this is, there's a lot of brokenness and there's a lot of animosity. And as you said, there's a lot of even demonizing one political party, Christians in one political party demonizing the other and vice versa. It's going both ways. What would you say to a, a member of a church that's just broken over the disunity? And, um, wh- what would you say to the, to that person or to the pastor? that we could maybe give them some advice. And uh, and you said, it, this is not a, a political thing. It's ecclesiology, which basically just I mean, deals with the church. It's the church as God's entity. And so what would you say? I think it's a great question. And my again, my answer, let me frame what I'm about to say by saying my answers are going to be theological. So I may ask some pretty pressing questions that for me are foundational to what it means to be the church. So I think my, when we started the church in Raleigh, um, Randy, you know this, I was raised a Presbyterian before I became a Pentecostal. I was raised on the Westminster catechism. Now I, I have moved away from an ultra reformed position. I am far more Wesleyan in my convictions uh, than I am uh, leaning towards um, some of the earlier. I love Luther. I love Calvin. I don't like Calvinism. Um, When I hear the guys demonizing Calvinism, my first question is, have you read Calvin's Institutes? And more often than not, they haven't. And I said, well, then you need to keep quiet until you read Calvin's Institutes because you're demonizing a man you're going to have to break bread with someday in heaven. And you might discover you have more in common than you do differently. So don't violate and grieve. Don't, don't grieve the spirit by claiming you know something when you've not read the four institutes. And then I'll ask questions like, well, what are the four institutes about? Which is getting to my point, because if In most popular charismatic independent circles, we have abandoned the creedal confessions so that we end up believing in revelation that is something abstract from what revelation is in Scripture. When we started the Raleigh Church, because I was raised Presbyterian, though the churches I had served in as Pentecostals weren't creedal, I determined from a foundational perspective and a spiritual formation perspective, our confession was going to be the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the economy of salvation. And that is the foundation. That's the Apostles' doctrine, whether we believe it or not. It's not a modern-day guy saying, you listen to what I'm teaching because I'm the apostle of this church. That's so far into Jesus. So many of these churches do not shape and form their parishioners in what I would call the regular fide, the the, the rule of faith, the, the faith once for all handed down to the saints, which is the creedal confession. We wouldn't even have a canon of scripture had the creedal confession not been fully hammered out by the Cappadocian fathers. The canon was finalized after does it meet the standard of the creeds? 
So we've got a lot of people that are either unformed, malformed, or deformed, claiming allegiance to Christ, but have never been spiritually formed from a creedal perspective. So they're not going to be able to understand how to relate from a kingdom perspective, because they're going to mix and conflate political ideologies with an ecclesiology that cannot divorce the Holy Spirit from the communion of the saints, from the forgiveness of sins. That's number one. Number two, then from ecclesiology, we have to develop a healthy, robust sacramentology. The sacraments are not a memorial. I profoundly disagree um, with the with the Moravians. It is not a memorial. It, this is my body. This is my blood. And so when our people come together, black, white, Hispanic and Oriental, Asian, when we come together, they have been taught well from a creed. We confess the creed every Sunday, but they go through a new members class where they are taught the creed. They're not allowed in the waters of baptism until they know what the creed is, because before they get in the in the water, they have to have be able to say, I believe in God, the father, the almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and all that that entails. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And then we instruct them just in case they haven't been filled with the Holy Ghost in our meetings, that when they come out of that water, they should expect to speak in tongues. So for me, the issue we're facing in the independent charismatic church is we have divorced ourselves from the great tradition. We've divorced ourselves from our Wesleyan roots, and we're claiming revelation that is divorced from the biblical concept of revelation. And we haven't discerned the spirit in the text, and we think we can discern them in our context, and we're a mess. And most pastors, I'm going to say in the popular church, are a mess. I'm just being honest. They're a mess because they've not been formed. They say, well, I know the Bible. Yeah, but whose methodology are you using to interpret it? My problem is we demean and demonize scholarship and education when Paul was a scholar um, and Jesus turned those unlearned fishermen into brilliant scholars. The chiastic structure of the Gospel of Mark, as told by Peter through Mark, the chiastic structure of John's Gospel and then the book of Revelation, the, the brilliant inclusios of Luke and Acts and the way they lay out the argumentation um, we can't demonize scholarship. We can't have it both ways and claim we've got revelation because sometimes you just got to love God as much with your mind as you do with your heart. So I have a my prophetic temperament gets really upset at popular Christianity because I think it's malformed. I, I, I gave you a mouthful and I realize I'm, I'm a pretty intense Italian, so <laughs> I can take the heat, though. I've been here before. So the things that have and enabled you to walk a congregation through the last year and maintain unity. A lot was the um, doctrinal formation in, in the, in the creed and understand and the, the unity. Table. And we come to that table every Sunday and we know we all have a seat at the table and we are all loved by Christ. We are all affirmed by Christ and we lay aside our differences and we learn to listen to one another. So the table, the sacramental table then becomes the table of our conversation. And we learn to listen, we learn to hear, we learn to recognize, we learn to um, press through our disagreements and hear the pain of the other, hear the concern of the other on both sides. Now, I don't know that we do that perfectly, but we do that and God's been very gracious to us as a community. I think the fruit of that favor is on us as a house. And we, you know, and Randy, you know, at the table, we have, I used to do prayer for healing at the end. Now we pray for healing at the table and we are seeing healings from fourth stage cancer and other things. We're seeing more 
manifestations of Christ's healing presence and power at the, at the Eucharist than I've ever seen in any other arena where I've done stuff in terms of healing. And, and so for me, it's become really central. I'm a real stickler for, for the sacraments. Thank you. Bless you. I don't know if you know, but in the last church I pastored, we had communion every Sunday, and it was yeah. There. I remember we talked about it. Yeah, it, it's you're, I, yeah. I'll not go there though. That's <laughs> powerful. That's for sure. Um, all right. Well, bringing this back around to maybe some of the stuff that you know I've uncovered just as I've been in the last week or so, just delving in the in this arena um, that I that I thought was kind of implicit. Um, in some of the the prophecies and stuff that I was hearing and, and, and the ways that they were um, gesturing, it's, it seemed like there's, there's, maybe there's something under the water that they don't even know that they believe. But then when I looked into it, it's like, oh, no, there's some that, that, that actually do believe this. And there's some documentation that might support it in their mind, which is this, does America have a covenant with God? And does God have a covenant with America? Okay. God has a covenant with Christ. And that covenant is the only covenant I know about, and it includes every tribe, every race, every kindred, and every tongue. Now, within church history, we are a missionary people. God sent his son. That, so the mission of the son is to be the savior of the world. But he doesn't just send his son. The moment he sends his son, within three and a half years, he sends his spirit. So we're dealing now with the economy of the Godhead the economic trinity, the outworking of salvation in all of its glory. So the father, if we look at creation, I believe in God, the father, the almighty. Now he created through Christ. But Paul says, if we look at his invisible attributes, surely there's within that what, what, what theologians call a general revelation, but it's not enough to save me because I'm a human being that has fallen and I don't bear the image of God. So I need his son through whom he created everything as the image bearer to convict me of my sin by the spirit so that by general revelation and special revelation, I can confess he is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So having said that, that's the covenant. There are no other covenants, but when God sent his spirit, God entrusted fallible, broken people with the opportunity to fill the earth with his glory. And all of us are, at least I'm a revivalist. I'm, you know, like I, <laughs> when I was getting my doctorate at George Fox, my, my faculty advisor got mad at me because I called Wesley a late reformer. He said, no, he's a revivalist. I said, no, he's a late reformer. And he kept pressing back. But my fifth chapter in that doctorate on Wesley argues that he was indeed a late reformer. So I'm going to, I'm right. He's wrong. I'm going to hold to that because I'm Italian and I'm always right when it comes to stuff like that. But the fact is, Wesley had a profound sense of mission. God sent the son. God sent the spirit. We are now indwelt by the spirit. We need to be sent to the, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So with that sense of mission, we want God to work with us, confirming his word with signs and wonders. And we want to establish beachheads in every arena so that Christ can be glorified. When the American nation was founded, whether we look at the 13 colonies or we look at, uh, we want to isolate to a certain group of people, the Plymouth settlers, the original Virginia settlers, they didn't come independent of what was going on in Europe. There were venture capitalists from Europe already here endeavoring to structure something 
that would become America. And the complexities of that are such that just because a group of Christians who were fed up with the way Christianity was handled in Rome um, and Spain from a Catholic perspective and in England and, and the Anglican Church, they came here to establish a mission base for the glory of God, and they at Cape Henry made a covenant with God. But when we talk about that from a political perspective and make that covenant they made with God, which is which is different than a covenant God makes with us. You know, when God makes a covenant with us, he, he knocks Abraham out, puts him to sleep, and he does it all by himself. So you've got the triune God making covenant with himself and saying, Abraham, all I need you to do is believe this. But the moment you have a covenant where people are involved, now you got Jacob and Laban, where, where they're both going to exchange something and there's going to be something given because they're both equal parts in the covenant. When we as Christians in our zeal make a covenant with God, and we think that that's equal in the current culture to the God's covenant through Christ, we're already on shaky theological ground. What we need to do is go back and look at what their passion was, what their purpose was. It wasn't to politicize the Americas. It was to preach the gospel in America. And, and that, this gets back to what, what, um, what I think is really important about um, this notion of does, does God slant a particular election? I think the moment God would do that, God himself would be corrupt because there are so many issues way beyond one or two issues that the moment we endeavor to influence an election, that's something God would not do. God would never do that. That would corrupt God himself because the God self cannot be corrupted. He is not man. And, and, and so I think now that's an issue that we could talk, but that would be a separate podcast. We'd take two hours, but we would need to come to the doctrine of the knowledge of God. See, what we're trying to do is impose on God our political views and then make a theology out of it. I can't do that. I once was blind. I now see I can't do that. My spiritual formation, my education, my understanding of the doctrine of the knowledge of God. I won't put God in that position because swaying an election is corruption, whether God did it or we do it. And so the idea that the Cape Henry settlers could sway God for something political is, I think, a radical misinterpretation. Uh, and, and it doesn't take into account the, the investor capitalists that allowed them to be there for their own gain. So there was a lot more going on in America when they got here that they had no control over because the kingdoms of this world haven't become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ yet. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. So the moment... We want to impose that prayer where back to this over-realized eschatology. And I think we're fundamentally misreading history for our own gain and advantage centuries later, and we're misunderstanding. And that's why I think scholarship has to be thorough and our sources have to be vetted. So, Mark, I'd like to see if there's a connection, if you see a connection here. And if there is, maybe we could cross this bridge. Uh, you mentioned uh, influence in the different spheres earlier, uh, several minutes ago, that, you know, that influence. And, and uh, when we look at the kingdom of God in the now, not yet perspective, it's here, but it's not yet complete until Jesus comes back and we're going to de- be dealing with our own human brokenness, our, the, just the issues of saint sinner in those who are redeemed. Um, Would you say that Jesus 
was saying that there there will be and there will be an influence and in he wants there to be influence in the different spheres of life. But the way he would uh, what well, the way he would say that influences to come about would be maybe uh, quite different from some of the ways we're some groups are trying to establish. And, and I'm, I'm actually thinking now of a person I heard you in a lecture mention, um, I believe it was Kuiper at, at Princeton. I don't know if his first name is Abraham or not. Sphere, but, uh, sovereignty sovereignty yeah, and spheres. Yeah, the sovereignty and spheres and, and how that has influenced uh, and has been picked up by Rush, uh, Rush Dooney and Rush. and uh, the whole theonomy in the sense theonomy. of God is going to, I mean, man is going to bring about the kingdom of God completely through power and force and law uh, in in our country. And so when we interpret that through the seven mountain mandate, it's moving to the top to gain control and as I'm researching this and trying to get in touch with different apostolic leaders or different networks, I'm not saying that there are some that would say yes, but I know that the majority that I know would say no. We believe that we are to have influence by serving and by having wisdom from God. We're to have influence, but not influence to control, but influence to serve. So I'm, I'm, and you mentioned, I'm trying to put two things together. You mentioned in the first broadcast that you're not an evangelical, you're a Pentecostal and the future belongs to the Pentecostals. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit, uh, in the sense of, um, in the, in the evangelical per, perspective, theologically. And I love evangelicals. I would say, you know, I'm a, uh, I often would say I'm a third wave evangelical, um, but how do you, how do you yeah. see this 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 aspect of because Pentecostalism did initially at Azusa Street anyway you've got the the evidence of the baptism of the spirit is not tongues it is the bloodline is washed away the color line in the sense of this people being together of all ethnic groups there and so would you speak to that yeah so when I said I'm not an evangelical I'm saying I'm not an evangelical as in the contemporary evangelical movement. I like the term evangelical from a Wesleyan perspective. I think Wesley was a true evangelical. So I wouldn't, I would distinguish between Wesleyan evangelicalism and Bebbington's quadrilateral. You're familiar with Bebbington's quadrilateral. The four points of Bebbington's quadrilateral would, would, would probably challenge for me, my Pentecostal hermeneutic. Um, because in many ways it is a cessationist um, methodology by which God doesn't, the sovereign spirit cannot do what the sovereign spirit did in the early church. And so while I respect the scholarship of Dr. Bebbington, I, I would not hold to evangelicalism a la the Bebbington quadrilateral. I would hold to evangelicalism from a more historic perspective of Wesley because Pentecostalism comes out of Wesleyan pietism and Wesleyan holiness. And I mean, I think if we study Wesley, we will, we will find what, what some call a generous orthodoxy. And uh, uh, there were tongue talkers in Wesley's meetings. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, I, you introduced me to John Ruthven years ago. And I mean, I used John in my first thesis. And I mean, I think the guys you need to really talk to that are way above my pay grade would be John and Craig Keener and maybe Michael Brown and have them have a conversation about all this stuff. Because um, 
yeah, yeah. but I, but I think I, I I I think evangelicalism has gone in a direction that um, I'm not I'm not comfortable with for my own convictions about um, what I see from a Pentecostal perspective. I have a heart, uh, and and and. I have a heart for a lot more than I think what I see practiced within the evangelical movement. Now, having said that, I have a profound respect for Dr. Timothy Keller. There are voices I see within evangelicalism that I think we need to listen to. Um, and they don't talk talking points and they're not interested in talking that they are, they are genuinely Christ loving servants. And I have the highest regard where I would disagree with Tim Keller would be in his pneumatology. We would, we, I, I think we could probably have a cup of coffee together. And I certainly pray right now for him because I know he's battling um, pancreatic cancer, but my prayers are with him all the time. He doesn't know me, but I, I have been endeared to Tim Keller over the years by what his work is, but I'm not an evangelical. I am persuadedly Pentecostal and I believe in the fullness of the spirit. So, um, and I, and I think I'm Wesleyan in that regard. Mm-hmm. So I'm a Wesleyan evangelical in that regard. I don't know if that helps or not, but it did me. <laughs> and for those who's watching, the pneumatology is just the word that means the study of the spirit. And oh, you know, it's. Um, I heard John uh, Wimber, who was uh, more reformed than me, but he said his he, one of his major heroes was John Wesley, and mainly because of Wesley's concern, you know, for for the poor too, as poor. you know, his social uh, side of it. Um, so back. Well, I got a follow-up question. Maybe not quite so strong as it. Does God have a covenant with America? But does God have plans and purposes for nations? Just generally speaking. Um, I think again. I think currently we are living in a model of global reality with nation states. Nation states did not exist until the 17th century. So when we read the term nations in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Covenant or nations in the New Covenant, it doesn't have the same meaning as nation states does today. And as a result of that, I think we again impose on the text something that is out of context. It's an exegetical fallacy to speak of nation states as something Jesus was talking about in Matthew 28, when he said, go to all the nations. And I think all this does is produce, produce more division. Um, What most people don't realize is when an era changes. Um, The agricultural era lasted for 5,500 years in recorded history. And then the industrial revolution changed that, but it only lasted 250 years or 300 years. And the enlightenment came out of that. And much of what we're talking about in terms of westward expansion came out of that. But then the digital age came and within 50 years, our whole world has been turned upside down. And so we get you and I um, and your dad, Josh, get more information in a week than our grandparents got in a lifetime. Information has aged us in many ways, and the speed of technology is changing the reality. But nation states would not be something that that would be understood from an apostolic perspective as how to work out the Great Commission. Because when the era changed into the digital era, the World Wide Web 
whether governments liked it or not, collapsed every boundary. I remember when I first got my first ran, uh, Tandy computer from Radio Shack. It took me 30 minutes to wire it up. But after I was wired up, I started getting communication from the Philippines. I started getting communication from England. All of a sudden, those boundaries, no matter how literal they are on the map, collapsed. And a whole new world opened up to uh, 20th century civilization. And I think what we're going to see is many of these boundaries um, in terms of practice and praxis are collapsing for the glory of God. So, again, I'm not going to read into the sacred text nation states because they, they were not on the mind of God in terms of what he was addressing in terms of people groups. I just like to and emphasize for is relevant. I think it's more relevant to look at it scripturally than it is to look at it politically. I just want to highlight what you just said, Mark, before for those that's watching is the what's called nations was people groups, ethnic groups, all of them of the world and not what we usually think and right. say yes. So then just to, to confirm and close the loop there, when when we read to disciple nations. And I know I've heard people talking about this from the pulpit in our movement that we're to disciple nations. You're, you're suggesting that just means all the people groups, not actually right. the nation states. That's yeah. And the moment it becomes nation states, we are back into an over-realized eschatology. And I, I just can't go there. I won't go there because I think I'd be unfaithful if I did. It's good. But I will go to every nation God sends me to, and I will preach as fervently and as powerfully. I will cast out devils. I will talk about Jesus. I'll lay hands on the sick. I'll do it all, whether it's South Africa, whether it is Bangalore, whether it is Kuala Lumpur. I will go because Jesus sends me because he loves all those people, just like he loves us. Mm-hmm. They're all creatures made in his image. That he, It's not his will that any should perish. Well, if, if I have a heresy... It's I learned it from the late Dr. David Edwards when I was first saved and at Malcolm Smith's church in Brooklyn. He was still the president of Elam Bible Institute, which was a latter rain school. It still is in existence. But he preached on on Jesus turning the water into wine. And he talked about God moving us into excellence and abundance and how the wine represented the abundance of the kingdom. And he said, when I get to the book of Revelation, I see a multitude that no man can count. And he said, a multitude no man can count is a multitude no man can count. He said, we haven't got calculators that could figure it out. He said, my favorite heresy is that I believe at the end there will be more in the kingdom of heaven than there will be in, the, in, in hell itself. So if I have a favorite heresy, I'd like to believe that there will be such a great outpouring of the spirit that when it's all over, there are going to be more saved than there are lost. That's my favorite heresy. I think Jesus loves people enough to want to do that. So doesn't mean I don't believe in hell. Please don't. (laughs) God, I just, you know, it's amazing how we selectively listen. I have gotten so much feedback from folk that don't listen to what I say, but I listen, I'm used to it. I, it's one thing to have 10,000 people give you bad feedback. Another thing, when you stand on a platform and 40 million people see you within 24 hours, that's a whole different level of detraction. So I'm used to it, but please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. Please listen to what I'm saying and don't be selective in your hearing. It's good. Do you have anything? Not right now. Um, I must decrease that you might increase. <laughs> one one follow-up, I think, uh, 
that I was just thinking through is I know in the last podcast, you know, you affirmed as a you know appropriate use of the prophetic function, Chris telling someone in in a relational one-on-one standpoint that, you know, I, I feel like God is, you know, calling you to serve in this arena, you know, maybe in, in the political sphere, like you talked about earlier, whether, you know, it's like Daniel or Joseph, right? So I just want to like, as I follow that word and the maturation of that word, 10, 15, 20 years in the future, this person has gone, done what they need to do, studied what they need to study, political science, they're still steeped in the word. And now they're, they're about ready to be, they're running for governor of, of whatever, right? And this is like the fulfillment of that personal prophetic word that maybe Chris or someone else had given to that person individually. I just want to make sure what you're saying is even though that came before and that was appropriate, any, any attempt to, to go beyond that and do something publicly and or- to, to influence an election to me is not godly. Right. Again, I, and that would take an hour to unpack the, the doctrine of God. But I have no problem with God raising up people that speak truth to power, that God, God raises up people who bear witness to Christ in every domain of the culture. Um, what I would do with the seven mountains is turn it upside down. Um, And I think many of the guys are doing that. It's not a top down. It's a bottom up. We stay on the bottom. We lay our lives down. We are to be a kingdom of priests. The mistake Israel made when God made them a kingdom of priests is they saw themselves as better than everybody else instead of interceding for everybody else that was promised to Abraham would become part of the seat at the table. And so I think we need to be sense. Well, here's one thing that I think is very important. If we think about where the culture is right now in a technocratic culture, everybody has a career. But if I go back 60 years to when I was in school as a kid, we were talked about, we were taught about vocation. Vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. There was at least enough of an influence of understanding of a calling. And I think all of us need to come back to, and our call may be bigger than our job, but all of us are called. Some of us are called to speak truth to power in the political arena. Some of us are called to the entertainment industry, which honestly, I was discipled by legalistic Pentecostals. I was on my way to making it, making it in the entertainment. And they told me it was all of Satan. I had to give it up. And um, if I could turn the clock back, I would have listened to some other voices because I really, I enjoy, I, you know, it's kind of like uh, chariots of fire. When I run, I feel this pleasure. I'm sorry if I like Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack, but I, I did it well. I mean, I, if there's one thing I did well, I sang Sinatra well, and um, I'm a crooner. And, and I think I could have glorified Jesus in that arena. Now, well, I have no problem God calling me to preach the gospel, but I thought I could have done that as well and not hindered or, or hurt my testimony because I, I was sold out to Jesus. But I think we need to recover the notion of calling and calling changes us over the course of our life. So my understanding of my calling at 20 is way different at 66. It's the same Jesus who is still saying, follow me. But I understand it at a more profoundly deep level than I ever could have grasped it at 20. So, of course, I believe. Look, Josh, I could look at you and say, Josh, God has formed you and shaped you for the legal profession. And that would be a truism, would it not? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, that we both know that. But if I were to say, Josh, there's going to come a moment in your journey 
when you are going to be faced with some conflicts where your Christian faith is going to have to make a decision in some very large arenas where you will have to pay a price not to compromise. And God wants you to be prepared for that. That would be a prophetic word, wouldn't it? Mm. Yes. So, and it would be based on your calling. And right now, I'm not just speaking, I'm giving you a nudge of what I sense from the Spirit, because your voice in the legal profession is going to drill down in a very specific area in the number of, in the number of areas that you are called to. You, 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 you are great at general practice, but there are specifics that you are called to that you're going to drill down to in the next three to five years, where you're going to see the hand of God specify something he has called you to, and you will speak truth to power. And it may cost you certain relationships, but it's going to glorify Christ in a way that is going to fulfill his calling in your life. Amen. So I still can prophesy. It's not like I I don't, you know, and, and, and 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 I think, God, you are doing the will of God in the arena and in the sphere you're called to do it in. Mm hmm but I would be very aware of what's going on in the next three to five years in your journey. That's awesome. Thank you. Bless you. Bless you too. This is worth the podcast right there. <laughs> uh, anything, let's do closing thoughts here because we're running out of time and I, I want to be sensitive to you got an appointment you need to keep. Um, you know, obviously you're a respected theologian, pastor, leader, um, and a voice, uh, you know, a fatherly voice in the prophetic movement. Um, what would you say, what would you want to say to just the American church um, in, in connection with all of this, obviously? Yeah, um, I am persuaded that it is time for a certain amount of reform to take place within prophetic circles and um, a real need for answerability and accountability Um, And I would argue that we've got to stop ignoring history and go back and study it. We've got to look at how the early church handled prophets and prophecy, how they understood the difference between the Old Testament authority of the prophet and the New Testament authority. I also think we need to discover that our methodologies for interpretation need to be scrutinized so that we can interpret more faithfully according to the great tradition with a capital T, the scripture without demonizing tradition. There's a difference between man-made tradition and the tradere, the faith handed down tradere from Jesus to the apostles successively to every generation. The spirit has preserved that by, to me, that's the miracle is that the spirit has preserved that tradition. And so let's not demonize that. Let's not demonize the doctors of the church. Let's study to show ourselves approved. And let's recognize that while the Old Testament prophet called people back to the covenant God made with Moses in order to bring them forward to where they were intended to be, the New Testament prophetic function calls us back to the Sermon on the Mount so we can be brought forward to the kind of company of people we are we are to be to bear witness to jesus in a fallen and broken world and learn how to say thy kingdom come thy will be done until it fully comes which won't happen until jesus returns but it needs to be our lifelong prayer amen amen 
Thank you, Mark. And thank you, Josh. I thought you did a... Oh, thank you. Do you have anything to say? Any, close out anything? Any, any thoughts for... Well, I, my thoughts are I do agree that we need to make a distinction when Mark mentioned two types of revelation, general revelation in, in nature and conscience, and specific revelation in what's now our canon, the history of God with God's salvation history. And I also think sometimes we're misunderstood because we use the word revelation mainly in those two. But I think there is within the prophetic community opportunity for having a third kind of, I use the word revelation, but it's not special revelation. It's never to be seen to be, this is, this is on equal to the scripture or it's in any way threatens the scripture. It's actually uh, arises out of the scripture. And that's just the simplicity of God speaking through various ways to his people because Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. And what I call specific revelation that would say, Mark, it's time to resign in uh, uh, Raleigh and move to Florida. You know, and th- there's nothing in Scripture you're going to find that's going to tell you to do that right. or me to do what. Or, or everybody, there is, a, if God is leading and directing, I believe that there are, uh, and you don't have to be a prophet, you don't have to be a, a pastor. Every believer, there can be an element where what, what, I, what I call the Lord was communicating. There's my grandma <laughs> who was illiterate and said, oh, the Lord told me. Uh, but it was specific details about pertinent to her life. And I think that th- that is a part of what uh, happens today. But it's not equal to and should not be seen as a threat to special revelation just because we use the word revelation. We're meaning it in three ways, general, special, and specific. Totally agree. Totally agree. That's great. That's good. Good word. Well, Mark, thank you for the time. Um, thank you guys for, for checking in. Um, if you want to hear more from Mark, uh, he'll be with us this year at VOP. We're fortunate to have him on the first night there. Um, so uh, check that out at voiceoftheprophets.com. Uh, please like and subscribe this video if you're watching it on YouTube. And you can if you're watching this on any of your uh, podcast places, go ahead and subscribe to that as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Really good conversation. And like we're saying, these, these conversations, even if they are uncomfortable, and even if you're listening, looking for things to disagree with, just listen for understanding. Even if you know you're going to disagree in some areas, it's still important to be at that table, having those uncomfortable conversations, listening for understanding so you can at least see your brother Mark as a brother in the Lord and who's actually doing everything in honor of the Lord, as Paul's called us to in, in Romans. And so we don't want to be disagreeing over these things that they were disagreeing over some pretty big things, you know, like dietary restriction laws for, you know, the Jews following the way was a big deal. The, 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 the Sabbath was also a big deal. And so they were in, in that time in Romans, you know, in the Gentile church and the and the the Jewish believing church, they were mostly fragmented along different lines, socioeconomic and certain beliefs. Um, and Paul was trying to be like, you guys don't get it. You don't see the kingdom. You need to come together and, and you need to not you need to not judge one another like this. So we do want this podcast to be a place where allow those voices to come forward to to to, to give the you know the body of Christ some opportunity to sit at the table and, and maybe gain some understanding. So thank you guys for your time. We bless you, Mark. Look forward to seeing with you. Bye-bye. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Spiritual. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. 
The Building Bridges podcast is a media resource of Global Awakening. If you'd like even more resources like this one, consider subscribing at globalondemand.tv. And for more information about our ministry, visit us at globalawakening.com.